Hello, welcome to the Charity Impact Podcast, where we aim to help you increase your charity's income and impact by sharing the experience and expertise of our guests. If you enjoy the podcast, please do give us a review on your podcast player and let me know on LinkedIn or Twitter. I'm Alex Blake, your podcast host, and I'm joined today by Ngozi Ling Cole, a consultant and coach working in the sector, as well as holding several roles on boards and committees of both charities and other bodies such as NHS trusts. Ngozi was previously at the National Lottery Community Fund for almost 20 years in various roles, including as England director and held various social sector roles before that. And I know works with a number of different funders at the moment as well. One of Ngozi's areas of focus is equity, diversity and inclusion. And so that's what we're going to be discussing today. Ngozi's going to take us through a practical framework that she's been using with a a number of organisations. And I I hope that's going to be interesting, thought-provoking and useful to you and your organisation. So welcome to the podcast, Ngozi. How are you today? I'm great, Alex. Thank you very much for having me. It's a real honor and privilege, by the way, to, well, have a conversation with you. We've known each other for many years and it's always a pleasure. And secondly, to be able to interact with your listeners as well. So thank you very much for asking me. Great. Thank you. Looking forward to it. So I think, first of all, it would be great just to talk a bit about the case for inclusion. Why inclusion? What is it? Why is it important? Because I think not necessarily everyone in the sector is sold on it. Probably if they're listening to the podcast, they probably are because they've chosen to. But yeah, let's let's just do a little bit of kind of introduction to the to the issue first. Great, let's do that. So I suppose we need to think about inclusion in the context of both equity and diversity. Mm-hmm. So equity, as most people know, is about making sure people get the support and access they need to resources. So it takes us beyond equality which is about treating everybody the same, which we now know does not work because of the different starting points that we all have in life. So equity, making sure people get the support um, and access that they need. And diversity, the presence of difference in the organizations in society, be those based on gender, on race, on uh, whether we're able-bodied on or disabled, at the different ages we have, young old somewhere in the middle, etc. All of that is important. But neither diversity nor equity, in my view, stick without inclusion. So for me, inclusion is about this cultural and environmental feeling of being welcome, of belonging, of being part of the us rather than the them when we think about the them and us. It's about feeling valued. It's about feeling respected. It's about being appreciated for who you are rather than somebody else. So it's kind of all of those things that enable people to feel comfortable and able to share their talents, their skills, their expertise, and to really help the organization that they sit in to realize their mission. So that's how I would I would define it as a starting point. Right. And we're going to talk through the, the framework, how to move from talk to action, essentially, because uh, there's certainly been a lot of talk around the issue. Uh, and I think lots of organizations probably have some kind of policy in place and at, at various levels in terms of actual practice and understanding. So I think that's really interesting areas to kind of think more about the kind of the action side of things and, and certainly moving beyond just kind of having a policy and not really doing much about it. I think so. 
All right. So the the framework that we're going to talk through is about um, moving from talk to action. So why don't you uh, give us a bit of sort of introduction to the framework and maybe start at the beginning of that and we'll we'll try and kind of go through it, give people some sort of actionable tips. Thank you. Thanks, Alex. So for me, first of all, why? Why bother about all of this? Why think about inclusion? So um, the 2020 George Floyd murder put EDR on the world map. We all watched that and lots of organizations came up with great statements, which they put on their website. Lots of commitment um, and ways of working that people started to at least think about. All of that is great. The conversation is really helpful. But a 2020 um, report by the Chartered Institute for Professional Development showed that just 30% of staff feel that their employers were committed to actually having a diverse and inclusive workplace, just 30%, and therefore able to share their thoughts, their ideas, and to enable their organizations to actually even better realize whatever their mission may be, which is quite important. So in my view, an EDA policy isn't enough. It kind of often tells you what you will do if somebody feels discriminated against or reports discrimination. But we know that many people who feel discriminated against do not report the discrimination because they don't feel psychologically safe to do that. So the best EDI policy might not have much weight if your organization hasn't thought deeply about actually what does inclusion mean? What does discrimination mean? What do we mean by EDI? What are we going to commit to? And what is our strategy for moving from just talk to action? So that's why having worked with lots of organizations across all sectors, I thought, how about a simple model that enables us to move from talk to action. Now, it's not meant to be prescriptive at all. It's merely offering people who've said to me, well, what do we do? We've talked about it. What do we do? What do we do that can be meaningful rather than tokenistic? So this model is for people who just want some kind of framework to enable them to think about how they might move from talk to action. So would you like me to summarize? Yeah, maybe start with a, a summary of the kind of few stages there are, and then we can we can go through them so that people get a bit of a sense of if they want to kind of pick it up and, and try and implement it in their organisation. Okay, so being a very creative person, I've come up with hashtag keep it. So that's the name of the model. This is not in my space at all, but it's very, very simple and it enables people like me uh, to kind of really understand it in its simplicity. So PAPER stands for prepare. So first of all, prepare for what you're going to do rather than go straight in. So that's the P. The A is for audit. So how do you assess where you are so that you can determine your strengths and any gaps and therefore lead you to think about what your plan might look like, which is the second P. So that stands for plan or your strategy. What are the few things you're going to do by when? Etc. The E is about execute. This is the Nike, just do it, getting on with it. Often we spend too long polishing a plan and never get into the execution stage of just doing it. And the R is the review point where you look back on how you're getting. So paper is prepare, audit, plan, execute, and review. 
And in terms of this this work around inclusion, does this encompass like all aspects of the organisation? So this is kind of both internal and external. It's about how you reach different communities with your work, and it's also how you ensure that all of your employees and volunteers and so on feel included. That's such an important point, actually, Alex, because a lot of organisations look externally when they start mm. to think about equity, diversity and inclusion. So who are we interacting with, be they our partners, our clients, our service users, whatever we call them? Who are we interacting with? Are they diverse enough? Are we being inclusive enough? So a lot of external facing work, but often um, they're, they're, people don't always remember that actually internally you need to make sure that your staff are also feeling um, included because only then can you actually think about it. So for me, it's about the entirety of the world in which an organization works. Internally, your staff, your board, everybody within your organization, but also externally, the people who use your services as well as your stakeholders. Right. So let's start with the first stage then with prepare. What are some of the things that organizations need to do to prepare or or what's the sort of process that you might go through? Great. So before I start, I will use a few examples So as we're talking through the various stages. When it's a positive example, I will name the organization, but when it isn't positive, I wouldn't name them for obvious <laughs> reasons. So just to say that before we start. Yeah. So I think the prepare stage is really the thinking stage, the point at which you get all your organization to start thinking about equity, diversity, and inclusion in a meaningful and authentic way, and often for the first time. And we miss out this step at our peril, actually. So when I run the programs, my learning programs with organizations, I'll often ask people to anonymously answer one question for me. How comfortable do you feel discussing equity, diversity, and inclusion? And there'll be choices like comfortable, very comfortable, uncomfortable, very uncomfortable. And does that go to like all staff? Is this with like who who do you usually work with? Do you work with like the entire staff team or is it predominantly with senior people? What's that sort of look like? It's a mix of both, actually. I do a lot of work with boards, boards of organizations, senior teams of organizations and staff. And a few organizations mix all three together in the same session. But I often say to people to be very thoughtful when you do that because mm. of the safety point. So when uh, members of staff don't feel really safe in front of the senior team or the board, then the conversations won't go anywhere. So it, it just depends on the organization and where mm. it is in terms of staff engagement and how comfortable people feel. But regardless of the group I'm working with, um, 80% and above will often feel some degree of discomfort. And when you look at our society and the discourse that goes around on social media and in the press and everywhere, there is this polarization of views where people are arguing about whether they are woke or not woke, which just baffles me when we know that woke means to be aware of the needs of other people. We're actually falling over ourselves not to be woke. But the importance of that question is to get people to just share how they're feeling anonymously. And then you can go on to say, so why might people feel uncomfortable? So all of this in the prep stage. And people will say things like, 
they don't want to use the wrong language. I don't know what language to use. I'm aware of my own privilege. I don't feel that my voice counts. I don't want to offend anybody. I don't really understand this, and I'm a senior person. I don't want people to feel I'm ignorant. So all of these things come mm. out. So the whole idea is to just have those conversations to help you to think about, okay, so what ground rules might we set before we start on this journey? So this can be whatever the group comes up with, things like being non-judgmental, things like making sure everybody's voice is important, things like understanding the experience of people with lived experience who might be triggered by some of these um, conversations we're going to have. But it's very much about allowing that space before we move forward. So if I give you a great example, so I worked with a group called the Sunnybank Trust, which is an Epsom-based charity which supports adults with learning disabilities across Surrey. So really important for them to think about where they take this journey. So I had a conversation with a wonderful lady called Dorothy who leads up the Sunnybank trust to think about how we might do this. And we did agree it we would work with a small group, which was a mix of their partners, the people with learning disabilities, but also staff and members and the board. So you can imagine that the needs of people with learning disabilities are very different from the needs of people who don't. So we had to work really hard to make sure that all the conversations we were having everybody could access it and be part of it. And that required a lot of planning, both with Dorothy and CEO, as CEO, but also um, Jovi, a member of the staff who is a partner, somebody with learning disabilities, to make sure all of our conversations about EDI and the definitions about bias, about racism, about disability, were very much pitched at a level where everybody could engage and share their experiences. So we had to adapt a lot of material, we had to think differently about the tools we were using, and we had to create a lot of space for people to discuss, engage, and so on. But that prepare stage enables you to then set the background on which you can build. And if you don't set that background, you might still go forward as an organization with people who don't actually believe that this work is important, who want to be tokenistic, and you can develop a plan, the best plan, to just sit on paper or sit on your shared drive and nobody actually uses it, and it doesn't make a meaningful difference. So this idea of preparing, making sure all of the organization on the same page can talk about what the issues are, I found is really essential if you want to have a great strategy. I guess so prepare is is very much about getting people uh, kind of you know talking about the issue and and comfortable talking about the issue and setting some of those ground rules so sort of laying the foundations before you even begin to discuss like how things currently are doing that kind of audit stage. Exactly. And it avoids the conflict as well of we get to the, the next stage, for example. And I think as our organization, we're not diverse at all. And everybody disagrees with me. And we immediately have a fight because we haven't actually thought about in the prepare stage. Is it important for me to speak up, even though I might be a lone voice? How do we handle conflict, et cetera, et cetera? Okay. Okay. So then we move on to the audit stage. Yes. So so this is presumably 
where you look at how the organization is currently doing and assess that what what sort of ways of doing that do you have spot on i told you that this model was really simple <laughs> yeah simple is so good for me, yeah so you can imagine going to a gp for example general practitioner with uh, i don't know flu or whatever and the gp looks at you writes a prescription hands it to you and tells you to go you'd be going hang on you didn't ask me about my symptoms you didn't ask me how i was feeling you didn't ask me any of it so this audit stage is about uh, understanding where you are as an organization before you decide where you need to get to. So, and this is not just about gaps, just to be clear, it's also about strengths. So many organizations are doing great things in the area of inclusion already. So you need to think about and understand those gaps because often the strengths are things you can continue to build on. And if you leave them, they might not continue to be strengths, they might slip backwards and so on. So understanding and banking your strengths, but also considering where your gaps might be. And this includes things like demographic data. So how diverse is your organization in terms of age and terms of ethnicity, gender, level of disability, et cetera. And this will show you how you're doing in terms of diversity. But then also qualitative data is also important checking how people experience your organization, assessing your organization using some structural tools that are out there to kind of understand what your baseline is and what you're working towards and being mindful of any blind spots. So this isn't about good or bad. It's not about a bad organization, where this, where that. It's actually about understanding where you are so can, you can decide what the gaps might be. Would you like me to share some of the tools that people might use for this? Yeah, yeah, that would definitely be interesting. So um, there are several tools in the market, actually. There is one called the DEI Coalition Tool, which was developed by a group of funders. So my old something around the National Lottery Community Fund, but also Lloyds Bank Foundation, Paul Hamlin Foundation. A number of organizations are in that space. And they came together to develop a self-assessment tool that enables an organization to test where they are. Now, it's designed for funders, but it applies equally well to many other groups as well. So an example might be, has the organization made an express commitment to equity, diversity, and inclusion? So that will be questions like, what does your vision and mission statement say? Is EDIA even mentioned in your strategic plan? Do you understand the concept of intersectionality and how the different characteristics that we hold interact? So your listeners might not know this, but I'm a black woman. Maybe they've guessed. So you've got my race, you've got my my race, you've got my gender also at play. I'm able-bodied, you've got that at play. I'm an older woman, you've got that at play. All of those things intersect for me and they will be in our organizations. So how do you kind of understand all of that? So you think about your express commitments to EDI and decide whether you've not yet started, whether you're ready to start, whether you've launched, whether you're well on the way or whether you're exemplary. And you would rate yourself on that continuum. But for me, it's not just about a tick box thing. For example, if you felt you've launched, 
then you would think, so why are we saying we've launched in terms of our express commitment? Is it because there's a commitment on our website? We're talking about it, whatever. But you'd kind of um, think about that. And then you'd go, so how do we get well on the way? What would it take for us to consider ourselves well on the way? And then you would sort of think about what those things are. So your plan immediately starts to write itself. So an organization I worked with called Scottswood Garden, which you might know, so it's a Newcastle-based charity that works to inspire and promote learning about nature and the environment, went through this process and identified lots of strengths. For example, strong feedback from the diverse groups that use their services, strong collaboration with a range of other organizations, including the Western Refugee Center. But they also identified some areas where they needed to improve, which are the things that they took and put into their plan. So I don't know, is that enough in terms of the audit stage? <laughs> uh, yeah, I think that's interesting. And I suppose what maybe there's something around when things come up that identify there are areas that are, I don't know if you'd describe it as like a weakness or an issue or, uh, you know, areas where there's a lack of kind of diversity like how is that kind of explored within that sort of audit process and i don't i mean there'll be all sorts of different examples i guess but like one that i've noticed is even when the staff of an organization is quite diverse often it can be that it's very diverse in terms of the frontline service teams but then exactly. the senior management team it, it's not at all diverse exactly. um so I don't know, that might be one example, but you'll have you'll have lots of others. Just like when some of those sort of things come up, like members of staff might be like, oh, well, you're saying you're diverse, but where's the diversity on the senior team? Then how might you explore some of those sorts of issues that come up? Spot on. That's a great example. And it's the sort of thing that organizations will debate and think about. So I have uh, been in those conversations with an organization that I wouldn't name that um, could have invested more in the prep stage, the prepare stage that we talked about. And therefore, when they got to the audit, there were all sorts of bots were diverse. And the discussion uh, often heated about actually, does it matter that we're not as diverse as we could be as a leadership team compared to frontline? And my um, thinking, when you start looking at things through the lens of power and privilege, is that actually you should be aiming for diversity at all levels, not just at your frontline staff. Because the people who hold the power, who make the decisions, if they don't have a strong level of diversity, then often they don't have as good an understanding of what particular issues might do in terms of the impact on both their staff, but also the outside communities in which they work. So, understanding that and agreeing that we could be more diverse as a board, we could be more diverse as a leadership team, and thinking, well, is this a priority for us? If it is, let's put it on a plan and think very deeply about how we might be able to do that. So you get that, that's kind of one of the big ones. Another big one is often the level of understanding of inclusion full stop. So a lot of people will go, we don't really understand what neurodiversity means, what it looks like. But we only have one person, John, sitting in the corner who has um, disclosed to us. So we don't really understand. We don't know what to do about that. 
um, an interesting thing on the plan might be, do we need a learning session on, on neurodiversity or on other things for that matter that just enable us to have an increased awareness so that we can interact and create a much more inclusive organisation for that person? Okay, so let's move on to plan because I think some of this stuff will, like within the plan and execute sections, we'll find out a bit more about some of the practical things that the organisations can do as well. Exactly, uh, yes. Yes. So I'm going to give you a negative example now. So Mm -hmm. this is an organization that uh, came up with an absolutely fantastic plan, in my view, where they had done neither the prepare nor the audit element of it. And when they had a look at this plan two years after it was produced, not only had they not made progress, they had actually regressed on many of the issues they put on their plan including diversity of their board and their senior team, but also a a better understanding of unconscious bias and how that might factor into the work they do. So they found themselves in a really uncomfortable position of actually, we came up with a plan, it hasn't worked, so we probably need to go back to the drawing board. So this illustrates the importance of actually preparing and auditing before you come up with a plan. So we all know what plans look like, and we know that if we have really long lists of actions on a plan, then we often achieve nothing. So using the outcome of the audit, all of this understanding of what we're doing well that we need to do more of, and the gaps that we need to address, the point is then to think about what's the small number of priorities, objectives, whatever you call it, that we want to put on a plan. And it's not just about putting it on a plan, it's what does success look like? So if we said we want to increase the diversity of our board, what is that? But we're moving from zero to 10%, 15%, 20%, what is it? What does that look like? So really being clear on what are objectives and what are the actions underneath that. What does success look like also comes into play here. And also, what are the individual and collective roles and responsibilities that people have to realize this plan? And this bit is so important because I think plans work best when everybody in the organization has a role to play in the implementation of that plan. So what's my role if I'm a frontline member of staff? But it's to make sure I understand the plan, it's to be a champion and an advocate, da-da-da-da-da. What's the role of managers in terms of making sure that their staff understand the plan and know what role they have to play? What's the role of the board, volunteers, whatever? So really being clear on those roles means we can hold each other to account. And a frontline member of staff can say to the board, if they feel able to do that, well, you said you were going to do this and you're not doing it. And then also making sure we're clear how we'll measure progress on that plan. What are we aiming for? It's a 12-month plan. Some people choose that. I prefer longer-term plans, three to five years and so on, with clarity about what we can expect in year one, year two, year three, etc. How are we going to measure project and progress? Especially when it comes to things like developing a more inclusive culture. What does that look like? It's going to take time, so we're not expecting to be able to do it overnight. But what are the steps we want to take? An example is a group called the Green Alliance. So they're a London-based independent think tank and charity. 
focused on ambitious leadership for the environment. Talk freely about this plan because they published it. It sits on their website so people can go and look at it. So they developed the plan with inputs from staff, the leadership team and board, and it's something that is deeply owned by everybody. So what did they do? First, they were clear why this work is important to them. And it was things like their belief that an inclusive culture is fundamental to enable people to thrive. They recognised that the environment and think tank sectors in the UK were among the least diverse, actually. And they also believed that this needs to be a continuous plan of improvement for them, not just something they were going to be able to do overnight. So they came up with five objectives, which includes things like increasing the diversity of the board and workforce, but also building a more inclusive culture at the Green Alliance, where people from different backgrounds, identities, characteristics can feel that their differences and experiences are valued. And they went on to be clear of the roles of all staff, of managers, of the leadership team, of a board. Um, They also had an EDA working group and they set up that they set up so they were clear of the role of that body and very clear what success looked like and how they would monitor that success. So really building on your preparing stage, on the audits of your strengths as well as your gaps into a plan that everybody understands that then enable you to take a more active role in promoting equity, diversity, and inclusion for everyone. That's interesting, the Green Alliance example there, those two objectives that you mentioned are the two things that were in my mind. I was thinking, I want to ask about these two things, actually. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, yeah, and and I guess it's a a part of those (laughs) sort of questions that, yeah, part of the sort of plan and execute stages probably. And the two things I was thinking about was one is the sort of broad diversity, like what a good plan looks like and how how organizations should be thinking about that broad diversity. Because I think you've got whatever your board size is, six trustees, eight trustees maybe. And you've if you think about the sort of diversity, like you've got all those protected characteristics, you've got those certain skills you want. You want to have people who have experience of whatever the issues are that your charity's involved in. So uh, yeah, like I'm I'm interested in what what does a good a kind of diversity look like on uh, on a board? You know, what should you be thinking about? How do you how do you do it in a way that's not tokenistic? So you're not saying, right, we've got, you know, one person who ticks this box and one <laughs> person who ticks this box and so on. Uh, so I'm interested in that in terms of the board diversity. And then the question about kind of culture, I suppose as soon as you start talking about culture, it starts to feel a bit intangible, doesn't it? So I guess the practical bits I'm really interested in are like how you create that culture. And I guess the when we talk about culture, I, I think you you said it well in terms of it being about like people feeling that they're included. It's you know, it's that and I guess that's yeah, it's not that difficult to measure. But yeah, it's how people feel, you know, feeling that they're included, feeling that they can come to work and be themselves rather than kind of hiding certain aspects of themselves and that sort of thing. But I'm interested in how you can move from not having a culture like that to having that type of workplace. What are the types of things that organizations need to do and that can be successful? So I appreciate they're two fairly big questions. Yes, they are. I don't know, I don't know if they're going to come up in some of the stuff about execute that you're talking about or if we can kind of dig into those things a bit. 
No, let's dig in. Let's dig into both. Yeah, both big things. So I suppose for me, there isn't a right or a wrong when we look at board diversity in particular. And what good looks like depends on the organization, what level it's at and so on. What I have a problem with is when people go, well, this is who we have. There's nothing we can do about it, especially charities. You know, I sit on the board of one charity at the moment. I've kind of um, streamlined the number of boards I sit on when I realized I wasn't Wonder Woman. I don't know what made me think I was. I just, just couldn't, you know, be an effective board member if I sat on too many. So for me, it's about thinking about what we need. So what are, what sort of skills audits do we do on a board to make sure we understand the skills we need and the degree to which our board members hold those skills? It's about thinking about diversity. So if you're an organization that works with people from Black, Asian, and minority ethnic groups, it would be very surprising if your board did not have the majority of people from those communities on it. Same as if you work with people with learning disabilities, it will be very interesting if they do not sit on your board. And I don't mean a tokenistic, like a, a user group member of the board. I don't mean that in a really disparaging way, except when it's done badly, when there are two tiers of board members, the proper board members, and then you know the others that we just bring in to sit on a corner so that they can enable us to and tick boxes, really. But for me, it's about board thinking, so who are we as a board? Who do we service? What's our community? What's the demographic data telling us in terms of the difference between the demographics of the community we work with and our demographics at board? And therefore, what does that tell us in terms of diversity? So let's take that learning disabilities example. Let's say eight uh, member board there is nobody with learning disabilities on it. But we have a service user group of people with learning disabilities. Not good enough because the board holds the power. So you need to be thinking, how do we have at least some people with learning disabilities on the board? It's a mistake to think about one person because one person cannot really hold the entirety of views you need. And it often puts far too much pressure on them to be the only and in this example of learning disabilities, having just one person with learning disabilities on your board might not cut it. There might be need, need to be thinking of at least two or three where you have those conversations. But it's not enough to just go and recruit somebody with learning disabilities. You need to think about, well, what support do they need when they get on this board? And it's not just what support do they need, it's also what support do we need? as a rest of board, in order to welcome them, make sure they belong, engage with them. What else do we need to do in terms of our own communications, own language, etc.? So you're thinking about all of that. You then go, so how do we find this person or these people? Where do we advertise? How do we advertise? How do we reach out? What does the advert need to look at? So you can see it's quite complicated, mm -hmm. but you need to think about it deeply and meaningfully. Starting with the why is a Simon Sinek start with the why. So why do we want to increase our diversity? How are we going to do it? What do we need to think about? What do we need to put on a plan? How long is it going to take us? And so on and so forth. So that's one example. And in, you know, it won't be universal for every group with learning disabilities. And there's certainly several where people with learning disabilities are in the majority. 
But for me, it's thinking about it, using your data, coming up with an ambitious plan, not just a wishy-washy, let's take a box plan, and then having the courage of your convictions to go and do something that might not be as easy as just um, advertising for a board member. Yeah, and and so I suppose in in the case of the board, it's about understanding the diversity of the community you serve first and Mm. then kind of working from there in terms of thinking about who you need to have on your board rather than thinking about ticking any certain boxes or being able to answer certain questions on funding application forms because they're now um most of the funders seem to be asking about this now and it it tends to be a, a sort of a question like you know is x percentage of your board has lived experience or something like that um yes I I know. Uh, yeah so i suppose it's a positive step in terms of asking about the issue but sometimes the way the questions are phrased i think make it a little bit tick boxy i know i mean you just go out and drag those people in that enable you to yeah. answer that question <laughs> yeah. it's like hi come on join our board you know we don't need yeah. to you to say anything or engage yeah. with us at all we just need to be able to tick a box and i'd rather it was more meaningful and they took people, you know, a year or two to get there if they need to, rather than that they just dragged people off the street and it didn't work for them in terms of their own mission. Yeah. Uh, and so the second big question yes. that I threw in at the same time was around the, the culture of the organisation and, and what are some of the practical things that you can do to try to create that more inclusive culture? Yeah. So was it Peter Drucker who said culture eats strategy for lunch or for breakfast, something (laughs) like that? I've mangled the quote, but it's (laughs) so, so important. And the best plan, the best strategy just does not work if there isn't the enabling culture to enable that to happen. So when we talk about inclusive cultures, and we touched on this at the beginning, it's about a culture where people feel safe. And I really want to start with that because the point of psychological safety is so important. So Amy Edmondson did a TED talk on this and there's a lot of research that actually organizations where people feel psychological safe tend to thrive, tend to do better than organizations where they don't. So what does that mean? It means that people are able to express themselves. They're able to say, hello, senior leadership team. There's a problem here. We don't feel that you're doing it right. We don't feel able to kind of put our thoughts and ideas forward. We may be consulted with in a very tokenistic manner and nobody comes up to tell us what to do. We don't feel able to challenge those who hold the power. So if I sit on a board and I make a homophobic um, statement or an ably statement or something like that, I should be challenged, even though I'm a member of the board, if the board is clear on what inclusion means. But people might not feel safe to do it. So for me, it's creating an environment where psychological safety exists. And just seeing it isn't going to make it happen. People have to actually walk the talk. They have to be clear what psychological safety means. They have to model it. So leaders in a very important position when it comes to thinking about a model like this and executing a plan. In terms of leading it, so you can't abdicate it, and I've seen organizations do it, actually leading it, role modeling what's happening, 
not being too afraid of getting things wrong, that you're paralyzed into inaction, but actually going, do you know what? We got that wrong, but this is how we're going to fix it. Apologies for it and so on and so forth. So creating that culture where those things happen. So psychological safety, not being afraid of getting things wrong. Mm. So if somebody gets something wrong and we go and grab them, hold them over the coals, punish them, whatever, then what's going to happen to somebody else sitting you know, at the front line going, oh my goodness, that's how they treat people who get things wrong. I better keep my head down. Don't try mm. anything different because I'm too scared to get things wrong. So making sure that you're creating that environment where people feel able to make mistakes. And with so psychological safety and, and being able to make mistakes and things, what what's the sort of how of how you create some of those things? Because I suppose going back to the very beginning at the prepare where you, you give examples, sometimes people might be in a senior role and they're like, well, I don't really understand this. And, uh, you know, they're, they're kind of coming from a place where they're like, well, I don't exclude anyone. So, you know, what's their problem? Why don't they feel included? Like, I'm, you know, we're all just kind of getting on with doing our jobs. They don't really kind of understand the need to kind of be proactive about making people feel safe and included and things so if you if your senior management team is mainly built up of those sorts of people that are at that stage is it that there is training or like some kind of support you know what are some of the practical things that organizations need to do so that they can create those those sort of feelings of safety and so on yeah yeah so um uh, Roshika Tolshian, in her book, Inclusion on Purpose, talks about inclusion and talks about the need to actively, purposefully, and deliberately include rather than, but we do it already. Anybody can come in and talk to us. We're open, we're inclusive. We can just make statements that make, mean nothing. So we've got to intentionally include. So two things um, to suggest in answer to your question. One is learning. So I kind of I'm a big fan of learning as opposed to training. So I do a lot of learning programs where I facilitate the learning, where people actually come and talk about things. For example, inclusive leadership. So what does inclusive leadership look like? How are we displaying it? What are the key tenets that work for us? Things like psychological safety but also clearing the path of obstacles, making sure people feel included, feel valued, thinking about actually what can we do as a leadership team to be much more inclusive, what sort of things work for us. So that kind of inclusive leadership learning for managers and leaders help with this. The other thing could be working across your organization to develop a tool that enables us to do that. For example, the Children Investment Fund Foundation is a multinational funder that works in Africa and Asia to enable children to have the best start in life. They came up with a, a document that they call the Code of Respect. And that document has four elements in it. Leading others, respectful behavior, where psychological safety comes in, collaboration and decision making. And it's full of really practical things. For example, leading others, set clear expectations, empower people to say no, role model work-life balance will be there. On things like respectful behavior, I've just brought it up so I can remind myself. 
things like meeting agreed deadlines, respecting and embracing differences, being present and engaged during meetings, and on collaboration, proactive communication with others, owning your own mistakes and successes, and sharing learning, and on decision-making, things like seeking local knowledge, respecting decisions, and so on. So you can come up with a tool, whatever you call it, they call it a code of respect that says, this is how we're going to behave in this organization. That when Ngozi as a senior manager doesn't give credit when it's due, is disparaging about something, somebody can go, hello, here's a code of respect. I don't think this matches with your behavior there. So those are just some things I can think about to start to create that kind of inclusive culture that enables um, organizations to Right. Yeah, I think it's useful having that sort of ongoing learning and support mm. and, you know, having those learning programs, having frameworks and things that you can kind of keep at front of mind, maybe having it included within those kind of regular management one-to-one meetings and things, kind of reflecting on on some of those things, maybe having some coaching around it and, and oh, all yes. of those sort of things, obviously so much more powerful than having like a one-off training program where people kind of go and learn something, but then often it kind of gets left in the training session because it's not then part of the ongoing kind of structure of, of people's work. Indeed. So we've got, uh, we've just covered a, a couple of big chunky bits that uh, probably alongside some of the stuff around execute but if we you know, if we talk through execute and review then that gives us a nice kind of well-rounded kind yes. of wrap up of the framework let's do that so the execute is the just do it bit so and there are a few things to think about first of all don't wait to perfect it all it doesn't have to be all shiny the plan all wonderful just get on with it once you have the bones of a plan ready It's also about being prepared to make changes where needed. So you might come up with a plan and something crops up next week, next month. You're not going to say, oh, well, we have a plan already. We're not going to do anything about that. For example, you might have a plan that doesn't reflect anything about the transgender community. And then you employ somebody that, uh, that defines as transgender next month. You might want to have a look at your plan again and think about whether you need nothing about consider the degree to which you need actually some learning around what it means to be transgender how you make sure that the environment is ready to welcome that person so it's not a plan that sits on the shelf there you need to be prepared to make changes then for me another thing is about celebrating successes so you you have a five-year plan It could be that you achieved some really great things in year one. Let's pause, let's celebrate those things as well, because it reminds people that it's about continuous improvement. This is a journey that has an end, that has no end. And if we focus so much on mistakes and what we've got wrong, then often we miss the beauty of the things that we actually do right. And then the other thing is not worrying too much when things go wrong. So I worked with a charity. Uh, that wanted to diversify their senior team, not their board. Their board was very diverse already. And they came up with an inclusive recruitment um, strategy. They advertised in all the right places. They went out and did all of this work, talked to people, 
They change some of their interview um, techniques and the way they work. They sent out questions in advance. They did all of this and they still didn't get uh, increased diversity during the first recruitment round. So you can imagine how disheartening it was for them. But often we can do everything in our power and still not get the results we need. And we need to think about actually we need to go out, what can we tweak, et cetera, et cetera, to enable this I suppose another point is about keeping this on the agenda, so keeping mm-hmm. the plan on the agenda. It can be something else that we do when we have five minutes and we're not too busy. <laughs> yeah. It needs to be part and parcel of senior leadership agendas, board agendas, but also team agendas. How are we doing? What's going on? It needs to be part of your staff survey. So there could be a question on the degree to which people feel included in the organization or engaged, respected, valued that you track year on year. So kind of doing all of that. But this execute bit is so important to just do it, get on with it. So a group called Circle Southwest, based in the southwest of England, works in partnership with the police, probation and um, others around people who have sexually offended in the community and helping them to be rehabilitated. So they work with a lot of volunteers. And part of their strategy was also to engage with those volunteers in terms of their learning programs. So volunteers by nature, you and I volunteer on on a number of things, are often doing it in their own time, kind of giving you commitment. But Circle Southwest saw the need for those volunteers to also be part of their learning program and came up with mechanisms like evening sessions, early morning sessions, whatever, to make sure that those volunteers could engage so that everybody is um, singing from the same hymn sheets when it comes to the execution of your strategy. So it's about just do it. Don't worry too much if you get things wrong. Pick yourself up, dust yourself up, try again, but just make sure you and take up the time for action rather than just the talk. Yeah. And just in terms of the review, what are the sort of approaches to review and review points that you have? Yeah. So um, a few things there. I think setting review dates is important because organizations, all organizations, but particularly charities, are really busy. We know there's an increase in demand for services of most charities at a time where people are struggling in terms of getting the stuff they need in the right roles to get on with the job. So often things will slip if you don't put your review date in. So if it's a one-year strategy, I'd suggest quarterly review points every six months, whatever, but make sure you have a time to have a look at your plan and see what's um, happening, where corrective action is taken and what's needed. So board and senior management teams need to have these points in their agenda. And as a minimum, when organizations go to produce their annual reports, there should be a section there on the strategy, what they're doing about the strategy. So those review points are so important. And if you talked about how you will measure progress, then it becomes easier to then review based on what you had said you were going to do. This is what auditors do, don't they? They audit you on what you said you were going to do. So what did we say? How did we plan to measure? What did we say success would look like? And how are we doing now? And what more do we do? So I stress it's not about getting a stick out to beat ourselves around the head. 
it's very much about going, so what's going great that we can celebrate? What's not going so well that we can have a look at? And what change do we expect by our next review points rather than, oh, we're not doing so well. Well, tough, what can we do? Actually, what is it we want to say by the next review point? And that enables us to keep it on the agenda and avoid the temptation to just drop it when we get too busy to think about this thing. So for organisations that are keen to work on this, to be create more inclusive cultures within their organisation, maybe to be more inclusive in terms of the people that they serve as well, what's the best way to get started? Obviously, we've got that process, so prepare is the first stage. But like even before that, would you recommend that it seems to me that it's it's probably quite important to have someone external to support with this kind of thing, someone who understands some of those sort of sensitivities and just has that bit of independence that could, you know, help facilitate some of those conversations. Do you think that's something that organisations really ought to be doing or do you think they're able to kind of get on with it themselves? I think it's tricky, actually, when I think about the financial environment and how some organizations struggle financially to get somebody like me to come in Mm -hmm. and work with them on what could be a journey. So I have some clients I've been working with for nearly two years now, so Mm -hmm. it can be quite expensive and hit in the pocket. If you can afford it, it helps to have somebody external to facilitate conversations, keep you and hold you to account and so on. But when people don't, and this is kind of one of my uh, a hobby horse now, I think um, infrastructure bodies and funders have a duty to help people in this space as well. Mm. And some organizations do it really well. The Lloyds Bank Foundation, for example, has a team of uh, enhanced um, um, partners. I think you and I are enhanced partners, yeah. aren't we, Alex? <laughs> so if Lloyds Bank Foundation funds you, they will be able to give you access to an enhanced partner that will enable you to go on this journey without you having to pay for it. And the challenge to funders that don't offer this is that they probably should, in my view, Mm -hmm. either through a partner or through setting up learning sessions that groups can come into and access and be able to think about these things themselves. And some do. The Charity Retail Association um, will often offer um, services like this for their and the retail associations that they work with. So umbrella bodies should be offering it for those who can't afford it. So that's one. But I guess the third thing is if you feel you can do this yourself safely, get on. I mean, this model is is there for people to use. Think about how you prepare. Use that question, how comfortable do you feel anonymously? But it's really important in doing that, that there's a lot of thought given into it so that you don't do harm. And you can do harm if you don't know what you're doing. Stumble in and you kind of have staff that um, then end up being traumatized by that experience because people are not qualified. That's what I was thinking why it might be. It's really important to have someone external because if if you're coming from a place of not having that kind of inclusive culture and people don't feel safe, then like, how can you go through that process being led through... uh, you know, being led by maybe a member of the senior management team in an organisation where people don't feel safe. Like how How is that going to work? Uh, so um, I think, yeah, yeah, obviously resources is an issue in terms of paying for external exactly. support, but uh, it, it seems like it's a, a piece of work that could be really difficult to do. And as you say, can do harm. You, you know, you can, you can potentially do real harm if you 
if you try to do it and you don't know what you're doing and you get it wrong. Exactly, exactly. Well, you can get started. So there are yeah. um, lovely videos online. I can send them to you, Alex, to share. Yeah. Uh, one called Reese for $100, which you've probably seen. No, I don't um, think so. Right, okay. So it kind of just illustrates very powerfully the different starting points that we have in life. Oh, uh, yeah, okay. You, I think I have that. Done. Yeah, exactly. yeah, where people start at different, different points. Yeah, okay. That's it. So you can play that and then discuss it and talk about how people felt about it. So that sort of thing. That yeah. doesn't put you too deep into the territory. But mm. if you can get external support, I'd recommend it wherever you feel able to. Yeah. Okay, so I made a note of a couple of resources that you mentioned already. There was the DEI Coalition Tool, the Inclusion on Purpose book. You just mentioned you can send a couple yes. of videos through. We can stick on the, yes. the web page. Yes, we'll, I'll make we'll, a note. We'll signpost people to that. Is there anything else that you think is particularly worth sharing that you want to highlight to people now or that you, we can stick on the web page? Yeah, I'm happy to send you some stuff, but... um. There's a great book by Blair Imani called Read This to Get Smarter. Mm -hmm. So it's little snippets of discourses, conversations on race, class, gender, disability, and more. So it's a really good tool to to have you think about all of these different things on. Um, There's a great video which I can send to you as well by Peter Hopkins of Newcastle University on intersectionality that really illustrates the fact that we're not sing, uh, single-dimensional as a, um, people and the need to think about the intersections of age, race, class, whatever, to enable organizations to really understand the different needs of people. And specifically on race, I just want to give a shout-out to Steph Idusi. So Steph is Chief Executive of St. Oswald's Hospice in Newcastle. Well, she runs a series of podcasts and webinars called Black All Year. And the premise is that often Black people like me get trotted out in Black History Month in October. <laughs> and I often have a diary full of people oh, yeah. asking me to speak. And then people forget we're Black on all other months. It's not just October. So Steph's series talks about issues to do with race in particular through different dimensions, be it power and privilege and others. And they're very short, very impactful um, podcasts and webinars that people can have a look at as well. So those are some of the things in my head, but there are other things that I can send to you. Yeah, no, that sounds good. And I, I should mention one of our previous episodes as well. We did an episode on anti-racism with Martha Awajobi, uh, which was a, a really interesting. It was fantastic. Uh, I, I uh, listened listen to, to that one. one. Well, done, yeah. well done to you and Martha. Uh, yeah. I thought that was powerful. Didn't Martha talk about the prepare, well, the prepare stage? I've talked about yeah. what she said something about. It can take you a year in that yeah, stage yeah. alone yeah. to kind of understand what you're doing before you even get on with it. Uh, yeah, she, def- she definitely holds organizations <laughs> to account. Uh, yeah, I think she was saying, you know, people come and they say, oh, she says, what have you done? And they say, oh, we started a reading group or something. And she says, you've done nothing. You know, <laughs> yeah, you know, you've you not even started. Good for her. It's yeah, like, yeah. get your, your finger yeah. out. You need more uh, yeah. to do. <laughs> yeah, and as you say, yeah, that prepare stage is really important. And I think that is... Yeah, there's a real risk there if you don't prepare 
that yes. you're, you're going to do harm for people that are working in in your organisation or people that you're trying to serve. So mm. uh, I think people really need to take it seriously. Yes, I agree. Is there anything further you'd like to say? Anything you want to promote? Or any any final sort of message to listeners? Um, so I kind of um, always throw down the gauntlet in terms of people's personal commitment. So hopefully people have been mm. listening to us for some time now. So what? What are you going to do? If you think about the paper model, where does your organization sit on that model? And what is needed to get your organization to that stage? If you're a charity CEO, I know many of them listen, what are you going to do to promote inclusion in your organization? You know that inclusion is important. I argue that you cannot realize your mission to the degree you want to do it if you do not think about inclusion both internally and externally. So what is the first step you're going to take in that respect? So I often like to throw down a challenge for people to Mm -hmm. go, so so what? What are you going to note? What small action are you going to take? What conversation are you going to have next? What book are you going to read? What video are you going to watch? What is it you're going to do to create a more inclusive world for us, but more importantly for future generations, so that your children and mine, Alex, my grandchildren and your grandchildren are not on a podcast having the same conversation hey, 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 in yeah. 20, 30 years' time. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah. what have we done, you know, yeah. in this generation yeah. if that's if that happens? Yeah, I think that's a good place to end. Yeah, just if you're listening, do something, <laughs> take some kind of action. And when you've done that one, do something else. <laughs> and, and yeah, build some momentum. All right, great. Thank you, Angosi. That was really interesting, really practical and useful for people. So yeah, thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me, Alex. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Charity Impact Podcast. Thank you for giving us your time and attention. I know how precious a resource time is. I hope you enjoyed the show. If I could trouble you for a further two minutes of your day, I'd love to hear from you. You can leave a review on your podcast player via ratethispodcast.com slash charity. You can engage with us on LinkedIn and Twitter. Just search Charity Impact Podcast or search Charity Impact Podcast in your browser to find our website where you can email me directly and you can subscribe to our email list for the opportunity to submit questions for me to ask upcoming guests. You can also find all the show notes and the previous episodes and links to resources that our guests have recommended there. Until next time, take care and thanks for listening.